Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me and let's turn to our passage, which is found in Matthew chapter 20. Verses 17 through 38, this is the word of God. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we... We pray that it will speak to us this morning with power. Father, I pray that my words may not be mere words, but they may be attended by the Holy Ghost with conviction and, and, and with power from on high. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a passage that is a, a challenge to us and a challenge to not, not to forego ambition, but to be ambitious, not to forego seeking glory, but to seek glory, not to forego the the designs on a life and plans for achieving great things, but actually to seek to achieve great things and to have plans for a life that are significant. Now, of course, this passage is also a warning. But it is not as you may have been taught, as you may have thought, as you may think (laughs) on the basis of what you've heard or what you've read yourself, a passage which, which is against ambition, the pursuit of glory, the planning that is required to achieve these things. This is a passage which commends these pursuits to us. And thus it's a passage that's especially important to us today. Because much in American life has combined, and I'm not speaking just about Christian life, 
but much has combined to make us seek um, mediocrity that has sapped us of our ambition. The, the pursuits of the average young American male are not what they were 50, 100 years ago. They're just not. They're tied in with virtual reality. They're tied into the internet. They're tied into things that are not true achievement. And this, what is true of our young men is equally true of our young women. They are caught in the same traps. They're leading the same sorts of lives in, in feminine ways. So they may not be playing games on the Xbox as much as the men, but they're living on Instagram more than the men. And what we've seen is a sapping of ambition, a sapping of, of strategic planning, a sapping of goals. And that is not what Christ is calling us to in this passage. It's not. It's not. Now, if we're going to understand this passage and we are to achieve what Christ is commending here, we have to actually pay close attention to the stream of narrative that's taking, taking place in Matthew, which this is a part of. Jesus is on his final trip to Jerusalem. It's his last trip there. He set his face like flint for Jerusalem, and he's going to die. And it may seem, it may appear initially that there is a random stream of events consecutive but still random of course consecutive with the providence of God with God's control is actually design it's not random but it may appear kind of as though we have this and then 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 this like a buffet or something you know it's not what it is it's a, it's a, a number of closely linked events because of what Christ is on his way to do and closely linked in the authorship and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the author, Matthew. And so there is, there's an integrity and a purpose to what we're reading that is from event to event, not random. Matthew is weaving a pattern here in the gospel, not just saying, ah, I remember this, ah, I remember that. And even if he were saying, ah, I remember this and I remember that, the Holy Spirit is inspiring him. And so there's far more to it than just the memories of a man, but that's not even Matthew's goal. It's obvious. Matthew is not like the announcer at a football game as he writes this saying, oh, now look, ah, oh, there, oh, what a catch, oh, this, you know. Matthew is an interpreter as well as an observer, first-hand observer. So we have here a story related by Matthew. It was evidently among those who were offended by these two sons of Zebedee and what they did. You understand that Matthew is, he is a disciple. And when he speaks about the reaction of the disciples, he knows what he's speaking about because he was one of them. The two sons of Zebedee, also known as sons of thunder, come to Jesus and they ask a favor now, it's interesting, if you read the account of this that Mark contains, you will notice that Mark does not even mention Mary, the mother of James and John, not even a mention of her. She doesn't appear. She only appears here in Matthew, where we read that the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down to make a request. I, I, it is obvious, even in Matthew, that the request is actually that of the sons, because Jesus 
turns to them and says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we're able. And so Jesus treats it as a request from the sons. They respond as though it is their request, and yet it comes, initially at least, through their mother, Mary. Now you may think, what kind of spineless guys are these? The sons of thunder, spineless? Really? You know, are, are we going to attribute to them some kind of cowardice or that they need their mother? Well, no. I think the, the answer is, is rather clear as you remember that their mother, Mary, was there at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you have to think that there's some kind of family friendship here. That Mary, the mother of James and John, is a friend of the family of Christ. And that the mother comes with them because she wants to see her sons and they want it. And so the mother's friendship with Mary, Jesus' mother, has weight. And, so, and she's using that on their behalf. It is their request. At the crucifixion, Jesus tells John, this is your mother about his mother, Mary. In other words, you take her, you care for her, you take on the duty that, that I, have, I have had until this point. And John accepts it and he fulfills it. Uh, and so we have every reason to believe that there's a very close family relationship between the family of Zebedee and the family of Jesus. And that has something to do with the boldness of the request and the involvement of the mother in it being made. Now, I want us to understand that this is really a crazy story in a lot of ways. Not the simple kind of shameful episode that we may initially take it for. And I'm not sure we'd take it for that if we were operating simply on the basis of our reading of Scripture. But I think we've heard many times teaching and preaching that has said, what shamefulness, what, what pride, what arrogance. Look at these guys. They're... They really think there's something. But I have found this story to be one of the most interesting in the Gospels. And I think it's one of the most instructive for those of us who want to follow Jesus. I find it a fascinating story. And it has great importance for you. For whether you're old or middle-aged or young, this is a story for you about ambition. And the reason this is such an instructive story is that it appears to be initially a boldly proud and a presumptuous request by James and John. It appears that way and the fellow disciples take it that way. They say, who do they think they are as they come to Jesus? Jesus knows that they're saying that. They actually don't come to Jesus that way. They're thinking that. And so Jesus calls them to him and they express it. It seems that these two men, these brothers, are doing the very thing Jesus has just warned against when he said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And here they are, seeking seats at his right and left hand in his kingdom. Isn't this exactly what Jesus has been warning against? This kind of self-promotion? This kind of seeking of a first position? Is this the attitude of a child the unfearing, uncalculating trust in God that Jesus says you need if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, and of course, initially we're going to say, no, greed, avarice, self-promotion, not at all childlike, not righteous, far from the attitude that's necessary to inherit eternal life. But is it? I grant you, it's ambition. 
All of us will grant that. But is it wrong? Is it evil? Is it sinful? Is it against the desires of God for the character of his children? The obvious answer here, that the one that I've said you've heard and you may even think, the obvious answer is that this is pride, this is evil, this is sin. But that answer is neither borne out in the reaction to the request we see from Christ, nor is it consistent, that answer consistent with the overall scope and character of God's work, his promises, his challenges to his people in Scripture, or the immediate teaching of Jesus to these men. Now, what do I mean? Well, I want to say some things initially about this request. We might say this is not a childlike request. We might say this is a very adult request. This is a seeking after glory. But is it? What could be more childlike than to want to sit at your father's right hand? Is there a more childlike attitude than to say my daddy is great and I want to be near him and I want to be seated right beside him? Now you can say, oh David, that's, that's wrong. You can't say that. So I offer that and then I move on and then you can come back and think of whether I'm right in that or not as I go on, all right? But I offer that and I think it is a very childlike request. Now you might say, well, it's childlike in sinfulness. Ah, is it really? But let's move on. Second, what do we say about this request? Well, what we have to say is it's the character of God to reward those who seek him. We must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, a rewarder, one who gives good gifts, that we pursue him, we seek him, because he rewards because he gives good things to those who pursue him. Do you believe this? Hebrews tells us this, this attitude is fundamental to faith. If you don't believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who pursue him, then you're not a Christian, right? And this is fundamental to the Christian life, that God rewards you if you pursue him. It's a simple message, but it's at the very heart of our faith that God rewards those who pursue him. And here we see the importance at this point of recognizing the tapestry being woven in this narrative by Matthew. Because if you will recall, at the end of the encounter with the rich young man whom Jesus called to leave all, to give to the poor, and to come follow him, when that rich young man refused to obey and left, Jesus spoke to the disciples and he said to them, it is very difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and they go, whoa. And then he says, it's more difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, Peter at that point says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, well, who can be saved then? Because he sees it as a, as a statement that applies to himself. Jesus says to him, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter turns to Jesus, okay? Remember this? And he says, all right, well, and basically he's saying, what's in it for us? He says, behold, we have left everything and followed you. 
what then will there be for us? Now, these are words of, of instruction and of inspiration, of challenge that Jesus responds with, not just to Peter and the disciples, but to you and me. This is for our edification. This is, this is inducement to lead a life like Peter and John and James and all the rest for us today. So Jesus responds to this question, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then is there going to be for us? What reward will there be for us? Is there something in store? He says, oh, no, 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 no. I, don't, I shouldn't think about reward. You know, he doesn't say that. I mean, some of us would like it to be that reward now. We do it because of the glory of Jesus. Nothing in us, nothing in us. Jesus responds and says, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, the end of time when all things are made in you, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when you read this passage about James and John asking to sit at his right hand and his left, are you remembering that Jesus has just told them they're going to sit on thrones at his side? Did that occur to you? That this is a narrative with a fabric woven through it, not just a one-off event. So obviously these guys are taking Jesus seriously. Jesus had promised exactly this reward to the 12 for following him. They have left all to follow him. And so, no doubt, there's a portion of this request that is vanity and ego. But let me say to you, and I'll come back to this, there's no striving for things on earth that is not filled at some point with sin. Even the most righteous acts you do Remember that Noah was told that, that all the inclinations of man's hearts are only evil all the time. God said, I'll never destroy them again, even though all the inclinations of your heart are only evil all the time, except the Holy Spirit works in you moment by moment, your inclination is evil, right? Evil, evil, evil. It's like my car when the, the driver's side tire gets real low and I'm not paying attention it's down to eight pounds and my car is pulling 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 uh, you have this low tire on your car and it's towards evil and it's you it's your character it's your makeup it's who you are and so these men they've just heard Jesus say he said it over and over again on this final trip that he is going to Jerusalem to die to be crucified. And having heard that, they asked to be seated at his side in his kingdom. So is it pride? Well, yeah, kind of. Is it ego? Well, yeah, kind of. Is it faith in Christ in the face of his looming death? Well, yeah, right? Yeah. They believe Jesus. All through the word of God, rich rewards are promised for those who obey God. No one in scripture is more liberal in his promises of power, reward, and glory than Jesus himself. 
offering, promising, rich, incredible, eternal rewards. Things such as thrones and crowns, glories like that of judging angels and being seated at the right hand of Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Even earthly rewards if we leave all for Christ because he says, if you leave all for me, you will receive a hundred times as much as you give up. Houses, land, family. In this life and heaven in the life to come. Jesus never glorifies or commends passivity, especially in faith. In fact, he positively hates it and repudiates it. What is the story that Jesus tells, the parable of the king who gave his servants talents to invest? The one who gets five makes it into ten. The one who gets three makes it into six. But the one who gets one talent and buries it, refusing to take the risk of investing it, if it is not a call to boldness of action in the pursuit of heavenly glory, Why does Jesus promise those who give up relationships and belongings for his sake that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age? Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life if he is not a God who offers glory and reward. Why does Jesus promise his disciples when they have given up all to follow him, that they also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel as a result of their following him. Are they to ignore this promise? Are they to put that behind them and say, oh yeah, it's kind of like you're driving down the road and you see a picture on a billboard of a scantily clad woman. You go, okay, I got to put it aside. I can't let that influence me. Is Jesus tempting you here? Is he throwing out red meat in front of you to see if you're going to go for it when he says you're going to sit on thrones, you're going to judge the nations? Why does Jesus tell his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes on them, they will, and I quote Jesus, do greater things than I have done? Greater things. Why does he say to them that if they have faith the size of a mustard seed, they will be able to cast mountains into the heart of the sea why does he say to the men and women who are thinking of John the Baptist and talking about how how he had been murdered by Herod that of men born of women none has arisen that is greater than John the Baptist you say well you shouldn't say that kind of thing about any man but it's God himself who says it And yet he goes on and says, yet the least member of the kingdom of God is greater than he. In other words, he's he's encouraging you to be greater than John the Baptist and saying there's no excuse for you not to be greater than John the Baptist. Why all this glory? Why all this reward? Why all these promises of power if you and I are to sit meekly, quietly, and contentedly in our pews? If we are to go home and mind our business, to work quietly, to look forward to social security and retirement, and then to spend the rest of our lives very quietly 
and contentedly driving golf carts in Florida, going to church with fellow white hairs, enjoying potlucks until we die. Yes, that's what God wants for you. Don't seek big things for yourself. Of course, it's true. As Obadiah is told by Elijah, don't seek great things for yourself. But that's a man who wanted wealth, who lied to get great things and wanted to be rich in the world. Why does God not only call us to great works in him, but promise glory to those who do so if glory is not is not something that you and I should seek. Why does Scripture tell us if glory is not to be sought, if your ambition should never be for glory, why does Scripture say that God will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Are you seeking glory? Not selfish ambition, but the glory that God gives those who live for him. The problem with your life and mine, the typical Christian life, is not that there is too much seeking after glory, not that there is too much ambition, too much desire for honor, but too little. Too little considering God's promises. Too little seeking God's eternal approval. Too little regard for the rewards of heaven. Too little trust in God, in the power of God to give us 100 times as much here on earth and in glory, heaven. Too little. We're too little ambitious. We're too little seeking the glory of God. And why? Why so little? Well, because our faces are pressed tight against the shop window glass of earthly pleasures and earthly glories. We're seeking a glory that fizzles and fades, treasures that corrupt and rust, the money, the fame, the glories that are only of man, the baubles and the trinkets of this world. In 1919, there was a great massacre of innocent Indian people in Amritsar, India. There was a movement in the Punjab seeking independence from Britain because of their mistreatment of native Indians. Several thousand peaceful people joined together in a meeting to protest the British arrest of the leaders in their city of the independence movement. They gathered in a brick wall surrounded section of the city. It's kind of like a city square, but it had really only one entrance into it. The rest of it was the the bricks of the surrounding buildings, 10 acre, eight acres, something like that. They gathered there, peaceful men, women, and children. 
And the governor general of the Punjab sent General Dyer with 50 troops in. He came with, he came with a, an armored car. They couldn't get it through the narrow entry. And so they didn't use machine guns. They used their rifles and they shot until they had consumed all their ammunition until no one of that crowd of thousands was moving. Some escaped over the walls, but the casualties, no one knows what it was. Hundreds were found in a well in this area, bodies. That 1,000, 2,000, 1,500 casualties. No one knows how much. And then after shooting, the general declared martial law and imposed a curfew so that no one could go and get those bodies or they'd be shot in the streets, so that no one could go and get the wounded. The first Nobel Prize winner in Asia was an Indian writer named Rabindranath Tagore. Famous, a polymath he's called. He was a writer, he was brilliant. He lived in Calcutta, not in Amritsar. He had been knighted by the King of England for his works, his writings, famous, famous man. He received news of the, of the massacre a few days after it happened, and he tried to arrange a protest meeting in Calcutta, but was unable. And so he decided that the one thing he could do to protest this, since there was martial law and he couldn't hold a meeting, was to renounce his British knighthood as a symbolic act of protest. And so he wrote the Viceroy of India, the British governor, repudiating his knighthood, and he said, I wish to stand shorn of all special distinctions by the side of those my countrymen who for their so-called insignificance are liable to suffer degradation, not fit for human beings. Honors from the king of England when his, shoulder, his soldiers are, are massacring your fellow citizens mean very little. The honors of this world should mean nothing to you. This world honors people who kill babies and pass laws for the killing of babies. And you want to be honored like Justice Warren or like any one of the others who's protected abortion and the murder of innocents? You want those honors, the same honors? You want money when the Son of God had no place to lay his head? You want this kind of reward? You're willing to take the rewards of those who hate the one who laid down his life for you? They hate Jesus, but you want their approval and their rewards. You're living for the things they give rather than the things that Jesus has promised. So, you must, to know the glory of heaven, repudiate your desires for the honors that earth can bestow. Those honors, that wealth, this form of glory is the treasure and reward of haters of Jesus. Those who permit and excuse the killing of innocents. The rewards 
of murderers and cowards and God killers should mean nothing to the son or the daughter of God. So I've given you two reasons. I come to a third why ambition is godly. First, I said it is childlike. Second, I said God offers reward. You should seek it. But there's a third and final point, and the best of all, in favor of her seeking greatness. Greatness in the kingdom of God. And that's found here in the fact that Jesus does not rebuke this request by James and John. Now you say, well, yeah, he does. Well, does he? Look at his response to them, and then later his response to the disciples. Let's do that. What does Jesus say in response to this request from James and John? That they may sit on his right and his left hand in his kingdom. Jesus responds, verse 22, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. So he said back to them, so he asked them, are you able to drink this cup? You don't know what you're asking. They say, we're able. Jesus turns to these two sons of thunder and he says, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. For it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Is this a rebuke? Is this Jesus saying to these men, you wicked, scheming, proud guys? So it's mighty mild coming from the Christ who says over and over and over again to the scribes and the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's mighty mild compared with what Jesus said to Peter when he said, get you away from me, Satan. You do not desire the things of God but of man. Mighty different from what Jesus says after his resurrection to the disciples, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Jesus knows how to to rebuke. Jesus is not loath to rebuke. Jesus rebukes, and he does so straight on and with power. In fact, this is one of my favorite parts in all Scripture. Rather than upbraiding these two brothers, rather than objecting to their boldness and seeking his favor, Jesus says to them, are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? What is that cup? Well, they know. He's been emphasizing it over and over. He just said it explicitly in the verses right before this. Uh, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. What is the cup? The cup he's about to drink is his death. He's just told them, Matthew tells us this immediately before this, so there will be no doubt in any of our minds what is the cup and what he's being asked, what he's asking them, whether they're willing to drink it. And they respond, we're able. Now we think, what pride, what glory seeking. These are glory hounds. Who are they to think they can drink this cup?
Let me ask, would you find it encouraging if you've just said to Jesus, I want to live for you? I want to live for you. And he says, are you aware of the cost of what it will be? Are you aware of what it will cost you to follow me? And you say, yeah, I think I am, but I want to follow you. If he said to you, you will follow me. Would that be encouragement or rebuke? Is Jesus rebuking them or is he commending them and straightening their aim a little bit? (laughs) There's no question. This is not rebuke. This is encouragement. Of course, we know what happens. John lives to the end, it seems. An old man on the Isle of Patmos, legend has it, Ah, we don't know whether or not he died a martyr, but he's the last surviving disciple, legend has it. But as you know from the words of Scripture, this other son of thunder, this other son of Zebedee, James, is the very first of the 12 disciples, the apostles, to die. He's the first. He drinks this cup, martyred by Herod for the pleasure of the Jews, in the very earliest days of the church, we read about it in Acts 12. And James knew in prison, knew on his way to death by crucifixion, knew in his heart that glory awaited. He had been told by Jesus that he would drink that cup and every step of the way to his cross He was encouraged by these words of Christ, commending him for his ambition. Jesus does not despise those who seek glory in his kingdom. So the other disciples are angered at James and John for their request. But it's interesting to note that Jesus does not sympathize with them in their anger. Nor does he upbraid James and John when they're in the midst of the other of the 12 for having requested glory. Instead, he tells all 12 how they can obtain glory. Glory in the kingdom of God does not come the world's way, not by naked ambition for worldly things and selfish desires. It comes by picking up the cup of Christ. It comes by carrying the cross. It comes by living to serve rather than to be served. It comes by following Jesus. I've often heard men say that they are seeking to bring glory to God by their pursuit of earthly glory. I've heard, I can't tell you how many men say to me, I think God's calling for me is to be wealthy so I can give money away. Yeah, I'm going to be rich. And that's okay, that's my gift for the kingdom of God. Not realizing that the widow's might is a greater gift than all the wealth of the rich. I've heard men say that they are seeking to be prominent in their professions, acknowledged, going to the best schools because they want fame and influence to bring glory to God. The problem is men who seek these things never end up, rarely end up, never doing what they say because Somewhere along the way, their desires that they thought were godly are revealed to be earthly, selfish. 
and they don't realize that God has nothing to do with their success and that God is ashamed of them because they will not carry the cross, because they will not drink the cup that Jesus drank, because their whole life has been a rejection of that even as they have claimed to be doing that. So these men and women never give up all they have. They say, I'm going to be rich. I'm afraid this is where our dear brother, but who's going astray and saying, I want to be a Christian, a billionaire for Christ. Kanye West is. He's fallen under the trap of those who say that you can have money. You can have it. And he's got his money. Those who seek influence and power, they achieve standing. They become political leaders. They gain prominence. And my father said it to me back in the 70s when a friend of ours became a senator he, and then was caught out in a, a scandal involving money. He said, I've never known a Christian who ran for office and who sought to be a major leader who didn't fall in some really sad way. That's true of pastors in America today. You would think if there's a place where a desire to serve would be prominent, it would be in the pastorate. But in the last 10, 15 years, we have seen big pastor after big pastor after big pastor go down, go down, go down until we are living in a forest denuded of trees. There's no tall tree left. Every single one has been greed, money, sex, falling, falling, falling. There should be no doubt in our minds that sin was present when the disciples came to Jesus with their request. There was sin. Yet Jesus does not attack the request. <coughs> Tinged with sin, he still accepts it, straightens it, makes the arrow which is flying short of the mark or off the center go towards the center saying, you must serve. The one who would be greatest must be least. He must become the servant of all. He's straightening their aim, and yet he is not calling them not to aim for glory. Why not? Because in its heart, in its core, this desire of theirs is an expression of faith. They believe he's a king. They believe he's going to have a kingdom. And they even believe that though he dies, he will be resurrected. Now they falter. I'm not saying they don't falter. But all these things are part of this request. They believe that heaven is real. They believe that the glory of God is worth pursuing and that they can receive it. If you want to be great for God, don't think that you're, you're going to be able to do it without sin. God is greater than your sin. God will take the sin that's part of your life if you seek him and make it part of the trajectory towards glory. Now, we see this in the Bible. There's many examples. Peter's sin in rejecting Jesus becomes his strength. When he denies Jesus, later on, he will not deny Jesus because he sinned. Now, David, with Bathsheba, commits adultery, murders the husband, marries the woman, 
And the second child they have becomes Solomon, the father of Jesus. God takes sinful men and redeems them. Don't let the sinfulness of your pride keep you from seeking the glory of God by being a servant, by serving, by being willing to be small. It is a strategy. Serve others to achieve glory. It's a divine strategy. Serve to be great. Serve others. Let others be more important than yourself and you will become the most important one in the whole place. Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe that he's coming with reward? Then what ambition is found all through your prayers to him? What greatness are you pursuing? What three things could you say you're pursuing in life that have nothing to do with this world and everything to do with the power of God? What ambition are you driven by? Do you have an ambition? I want to close by saying to you, if you don't have ambition, I fear you may not have Jesus because it's impossible to live around the greatness of Jesus and not want it. It's impossible to know his incredible glory and not seek to share in it, especially when he promises it. So I want to I speak to those of you who are young and say, you may have been taught that ambition was wrong. You may be thinking that ambition is something that is proud and, and vain. Yes, often it is. But set your sights on some great goal for God. Have some idea of greatness that isn't just Instagram greatness, influencer greatness. Have some idea of greatness and go for it. And if people call you proud, well, don't forget that people called David proud and called Moses proud and called John the Baptist, no doubt, proud and Jesus proud because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and that was proud. Don't let people attack you for your pride when you're seeking the will of God. I want to say to you who are parents, watch out what you set as the goals for your children, what ambitions you do embrace and what ones you, you do not emphasize. What I, what I think is important to say is that you be agnostic in what they do that is just of human, human nature, human goals. Whether they get a PhD or not. Whether they get a high paying job or not. You may want them to be disciplined, that's fine because that's useful for all things. But be very agnostic. Let God work, don't hold up key things that are worldly in their minds so that they go for those things and think those are what you really believe is important. Be agnostic about their earthly goals. Call them, on the other hand, to serve God. Call them to be small, to serve, so that God may be glorified in them. Drive them to goals that require the power of God through faith. It's a sad thing to see kids whose parents drove them to earthly goals that they could achieve. You see this in the Olympics time after time. You see the young gymnastic stars. You see this in sports often. They, they've achieved the pinnacle of height and fame at 25, and what's the rest of their life for? It's gone. You know, they achieved their peak at 25. What do you do after that? Finally, I want to say something to those of you who are older. No one should be more ambitious than the elderly. Many of the, the greatest ambitions in Scripture are those that came to, to men and women in old age. Caleb, 
who at age 85 said, I am going to go and take us this, this region. I can conquer it. And uh, who actually offered his daughter to the man who'd conquered the, one of the cities in that region. And uh, Othniel got Caleb's daughter, an 85-year-old, offering his daughter to, in marriage. And apparently a happy marriage because we're told of the, the descendants from it. Abraham, who at age 100 is still looking for God to give him a child. And he gets his child at age 100. Moses. Moses has lived two lifetimes, in a sense, by the time God calls him at the burning bush. He's 80 years old. He spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. And at 80 years old, he's called to do great things for God. What great thing are you set on if you're getting older? Are you living as an example to everyone of the faith of a man or woman of God and the great things God can do? That even though you're old and as good as dead as Moses and as Abraham and Sarah, that God can do great things through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you will give us godly ambition, that we will seek the greatness of heaven, that we may be humble, Father, that we may not be proud, that our ambitions may be from you rather than selfish. But Father, may we, may we change this world. May this church raise up men and women who, who are famous in the halls of heaven for their service to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.